Hey, food friends, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast, your number one spot to get mentoring, guidance, and behind the scene learnings to help you understand what it really takes to launch, grow, and scale your packaged food or beverage business. On the show, you'll hear from food founders at various stages of growth, and you'll hear from me and my 14 years of packaged food and beverage experience. Each episode is packed with insights, inspiration, and learning to help you on your food business journey. I'm your host, Ainsley, and this is the Food Founders Podcast. Before we jump into today's show, I want to thank our sponsor, the Food Brands That Sell program. Food Brands That Sell is a six-week deep dive into the CPG industry and teaches you how to win within that industry by creating a brand that you, retailers, and consumers love. Here's what a recent alumni had to say about the program. I am so grateful that I chose to do Food Brands That Sell. I learned so much about myself, my journey, and my company. These six weeks changed how I'm doing my business, and I can see the difference already. I no longer feel alone. If you aren't already on the waitlist, hop on over to foodbrandsthatsellwaitlist.com or grab the link below to make sure that you are first to know when the program is accepting new students. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Today, I'm excited to be chatting with the founder of AgriCycle, Josh Scheffner. Josh has created not just fantastic brands, but a movement, ingredients, and really an inspiring way to do business. So I'm excited to dive into this today and and hear more of the story and share that with everyone. So Josh, welcome to the Food Founders Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Ainsley. Josh, could you just open it up by sharing with everyone, what is AgriCycle and and what are you guys all about? Yeah, so AgriCycle closes the gap between smallholder farmers in developing economies and global markets by democratizing access to the agricultural value chain. What that actually means is that there's a lot of people that can't access a global markets if they're a small farmer um, in a remote area because they don't have the processing capacity where they are or the supply chains take advantage of them. Or B, you're an unemployed or underemployed woman or youth and you don't have access to land ownership. So you can't have a farm and participate in agriculture. So AgriCycle comes in and takes this network of you know, latent workforce uh, capacity and applies it toward the massive amount of food that goes to waste before it ever reaches a market in Africa. Um, so we're connecting these two things with our passive solar dehydrators. They work without electricity. We sell them to the group. We train them on how to use them, meet food safety and quality standards. We've essentially organized this workforce and organized the raw material, the food waste, and then we upcycle those products Long story short, we create brands and ingredients and we sell them in the U.S. Okay, that is, first of all, really inspiring. Second of all, it's so much more than just the food. And I talk about this often with people. It's like, when you have a business, you can truly help create the world that you want to create. And you are doing that. What led you to want to create this business? How did this massive movement, and I'm going to say movement because it is much more than a product. How did this start? Uh, I wanted to 
work in the international development college. Um, so later years of high school, that was what I was aiming toward. Engineering was always like something that was pulling me back and forth too. Um, I went to this leadership camp when I was 17 and, you know, my dreams of going to work in DC or foggy bottom or something and like working in the whole development space and policy writing got flipped on its head because somebody told me, don't you actually want to accomplish something? And, uh, the, the realism of, you know, anything that's accomplished lasts either four or eight years. Um, that's only if (laughs) if you got it passed at the start of a term. So I instead went toward engineering because I wanted to do humanitarian engineering. And that's a, it's not a specific sect of engineering. It's more of an application. So you can have any type of skills, be it structural or water or mechanical, electrical. The point is that you're taking those skills and you're applying them to developing communities and economies and working with them to make solutions that are appropriate. So the idea is that the solution actually has them in mind rather than, you know, some UW-Madison grad who creates the ultimate solar dehydrator that's the most efficient in the world, but it costs $2,000 and none of the tools to make it exist in, you know, in the county. So I got interested in humanitarian engineering and I went to school for that, um, for structural and started working with engineers without borders. And that's actually where my first experience traveling abroad came from in the highlands of Guatemala and Hoyaba and just seeing all the food that was going to waste. We're doing fantastic work in building bridges that were destroyed in like a 28 year civil war, cutting people off from their farms. But apart from that, people like the whole purpose behind that was so that, you know, if you had access to your farm, you could not make more money, but there was already a bunch of food going to waste. So my idea was, couldn't you make something that preserves that? And then, you know, you could sell dried fruit was the very simple idea that spiraled into, you know, okay, here's a dehydrator and them saying, who cares? I can't sell dried fruit. What am I supposed to do with this? And the, the farmer's spelled out the need for a vertically integrated business that did everything from technology and training to the export. Then on the other side to the branding, marketing, sales, support, all of it. Um, And so that's how AgriCycle was created just through my first two years of college exploring this sort of stuff. What was the initial reaction like when you presented this idea? It sounds like the farmers kind of led you here, but when you were like, okay, let's do this. I'm going to help you. What was that reaction like for them? For uh, for the farmers? Yeah. Really positive, like incredibly. We had a year of false starts after that. So the whole model that we had been working on assumed this sort of idea that we were not experts in international development nor in working with rural communities. And we should walk on eggshells and tiptoe around speaking to anyone who's poor, essentially. Um, that's definitely what you're taught in college and university and like the general idea of if you're working in a, in a, a setting that, that has poverty, <laughs> you have to you know let the experts speak. So we had nonprofits that were inter- intermediaries and they would work with communities on our behalf and we would travel sometimes to teach them. But Ultimately, we were communicating with the nonprofit and the nonprofit talked to the the actual people who mattered. Those broke down each relationship. It was either terrible communication, the product couldn't get made to the right specs, or even just the nonprofits moved on because grant money had attracted them somewhere else and they would literally like uproot and leave the community. 
So a year after that, because I wouldn't say that those were really good experiences with the, with the communities. They were pretty pissed by the end of those. But it was when we started traveling on our own to East Africa. So I'd gotten a LinkedIn message from Francis Okat in Uganda, and we had met somebody who had parents in Kenya. And that was essentially all we needed to, great, I know I have one place that I can stay and we'll just meet people from there and, and go and talk. So we flew out to Uganda on Thanksgiving break. And um, it was me and one of my friends who, who was doing this. And we started just meeting with farmers and communities and pitching, you know, not the idea of sensitizing them and trying to understand their needs and blah, blah. Instead, it was like, hey, at this point, I have a solution that I think might work. We have a dehydrator. I will pay you X amount of money per kilogram. This is about how many mangoes. It takes about 25 mangoes to make a dried kilogram. Uh, I will pay you for infinitely amount, you know, however many mangoes you can create. You have to pay about $100 to build this dehydrator. Are you in or are you out? And that was like the most straightforward pitch that no nonprofit had ever tried. And suddenly we had like, you know, grassroots, you know, fire sale. Everyone was talking about blue mangoes at the time. And we, we went from 10 contacts to a few thousand of people who were like wanting this. So it was a solution that just kind of recognized you can speak to people who are poor and they are smart enough to make their own business decisions. And yeah, so, so the reaction was very positive when we switched our approach to just being direct. Okay. A lot of people first, first round would have just been like, Hey, I guess we need to work with NGOs and NGOs don't seem to, you know, be the reliable source for this. Throw in the towel next idea. What made you guys not throw in the towel and and keep going? (laughs) Definitely part of it would have been some unreasonable stubbornness to it of like, we know on paper this idea works, Mm. the dehydrator works. Cat, (laughs) 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 the the, the whole thing should, um, should work. We just haven't found the right partner. And we were convinced that the issue wasn't us and it wasn't the farmers. And that was just something, it was the nonprofits where if the nonprofits weren't working, if we cut them out, it would work. Part of it also was just this thing of, you know, I'm not sure what my next move would have been um, if this idea didn't work. So I think that was a little, you know, latched on to the idea that, you know, this is one thing I developed that I hope it can do something. I'm not sure what else I'd be working on if it wasn't this. So we're going to, push this to the end and see if it, if it does work. So. And did you guys have funding for this or were you mm-hmm. bootstrapping at all? Like, yeah. 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 Um, so I also just want to point out that like bootstrapping for a completely financial aid college student is different than like bootstrapping for somebody who's been in industry for 20 years. So totally. it was, it was bootstrapped by my internships where, you know, Francis Okat became one of our employees and so did Patrick and, um, in, in East Africa. And I would work at my internship and I would take the money I made and I would send it over to them. And like, that was their salary and we'd split up what I would make and lower, like lower cost of living. So, so the math was sufficient enough to keep them going. They were not getting paid <laughs> very well at all, but it, we had to recruit a network and we had to get that outline of supply chain in place. Ultimately, like we could never make the product without real money though, because I mean, the cost of packaging alone and like do it, you know, the minimal order quantities behind a run and then getting the fruit to one place, having a facility that we're renting that meets all the, you know, quality standards and food safety standards. It's a lot of different pieces that required real money. So instead we recruited up to, you know, the 15 to 20,000s of 
you know, small holders and, and people who are ready. We designed the dehydrator and we went around with that and started doing pitch competitions and we would win $10,000 on a Wisconsin TV show. And we won five grand from a startup incubator. And there's those little pieces that kept the business, you know, getting to the next stage. We got into target incubator after that. So that was really the turning point where we went from, we have a bunch of people gathered together and something can be done with this. If somebody please gave us money to, Hey, here's actually the brands that we're building. It's not just dried fruit from Africa. Now it's Jolly Fruit Co. You know, a brand that's fully traceable from tree to shelf with a find my farm QR code. Like each bag is individually packed. It's upcycled, it's sun-dried, and there's absolutely nothing added. So now we had this brand behind it. We actually started to understand what you needed to do to, to build a food brand and started thinking of ourselves more of a food company than before we were just like, I don't know what we thought we were as a company, but it was definitely not a food company at that point. So we walked out of targeting incubator prepared to take on an investment. And then we raised money and got that done. So that was December of 2019 when we raised our first money. So December 2019, you're walking away, you're raising money full-heartedly that you have a food company, a packaged food company. Do you still see yourself as a food company right now? That has evolved. Um, I see us as a supply chain company. Mm. So kind of back to where we were in the beginning, if if you were to look at something two-dimensionally on a circle, you know, we're kind of looped back around to the supply chain. But if it's three-dimensional in a spiral that goes up, we're definitely like far more advanced and have a better idea and capacity of what we're doing, but more on the side of supply chain. So with these brands, the idea was that we were going to push out a portfolio of upcycled, ethically sourced CPG brands. That was a part of the pitch. Um, and it was going to be one brand after another, one a year, proving a new thing we could do from traceable dried fruit to sustainable charcoal, uh, to energy bars, to chips, to anything that could be mass market appeal enough, but still have, you know, the, the functional benefits of our ingredients. The idea is that by having a lot of brands going through the same supply chain, we'd reduce the cost of goods of them overall because it's using some of the same overhead and lower minimum order quantities to get a you know 40 foot container to move. We broke that down further, saw two things. Number one, it's super expensive to launch a brand. And to, to grow that and slotting fees alone, like if you want to go retail and you're like, ah, that's where the volume is, we'll you know, be prepared to shell out a bunch of money at the start of that. The second thing was that it didn't need to be our products that we're going through. The impact that we're having is that we pay women and, and farmers and youth and refugees directly within zero to two days after we pick up their ingredients. They would wait for up to 120 days before to get paid less than what they were promised, and it would be a really crappy amount. But for us, we pay between seven to 28 times what they would otherwise make. And that's because we've cut out everyone in the middle. The impact that we're having is based on purchasing the ingredients in the first place. It's not based on what brand it is on the back end or if it's AgriCycle's name on a package. So we broke down the idea of you know these volumes and aggregating these different things to we have ingredients available we have a supply chain that works better and better the more volume, you know, the, the more throughput there is. And so now we've become or we've pivoted toward um, actually kind of following what Renewal Mill has done too and regrained, but becoming a ingredient supplier of ethically sourced, upcycled, functional and traceable ingredients that have a real story, traceability back to the exact farm, but of 130 ingredients. 
and that that is now meant to be a base for other brands to build their products off of. And our brands essentially prove that you can source from you know, the bottom of the economic pyramid, from the most remote rural farmers, and that we can ensure their standards. So that's, that's where the company's gone since. I love that you, and I love what you said about the fact that you're making it available to everyone, but you're continuing to keep your brands as the case study, that it can be done, that people want this, that it absolutely is feasible because getting people to shift uh, isn't always easy. Um, Talk to me about people that are coming to you for these products as ingredients or like the ingredients themselves. Are they coming to you or are you guys reaching out to them to say, hey, have you thought about making your product more sustainable? Here's a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So the inbound side has been successful with some of the PR that we got recently. We walked away with winning the Food Bites uh, 2020 pitch competition uh, for CPG. And that put us in front of a lot of huge players that we never had access to before. Um, and so we're actually working with four of you know the people and sponsors of that event to roll out two products and fill in some of their ingredient gaps too. Um, and also just replacing a few ingredient supply chains because you know in this whole picture, we're able to pay the farmers better, but our costs are actually less than what the standard prices are on like green banana flour, cassava flour, sweet potato flour, all that. So better claims, same or less prices, generally the, the thing. So we've had good inbound from that sort of stuff. I think we're trying now to, and, and I, I was just telling you right before this call, but I was you know redoing my pitch deck and trying to capture all of this. We're now focused on um, product formulation, on you know leveraging our brands as more demonstrations uh, themselves, and you know starting to try to get in front of different people and say like, hey, we exist. We're an option. If you want a better supply chain, like you know, we're we're one of your top choices. So that's that's what we're starting to do. And that leads into the outbound. So we've been really successful at reaching out to small brands and saying, hey, we already have containers that come over. If you're fine with not being on your own schedule, essentially, as a very tiny brand, if you're, if you're fine with not being on your own schedule, our minimum order quantity could be a pallet of, you know, of a product, either as a fully co-packed um, uh, or it could just be uh, the ingredients themselves and be like 500 kilograms or something. So 1,200 pounds. So yeah, that's you know some of the ways that we're reaching out to to small startups that you know in the same way that an investor looks at you know or a venture investor would would look at startups that you know one out of every seven or one out of every ten is going to blow up and be big. You know, if we're the ingredient supplier of ten small startups, one of them is going to become massive, um, and that means that you know ideally <laughs> we do a good job and our supply chain works with them, and you know now we're supplying a massive volume, all of that bought at an outsized price from, from smallholders. Yeah, such an all-encompassing view of this. Um, is that just your natural way of viewing business, view, viewing life? Or is that something that you've developed as you have kind of grown in this business? I think I would never be good at running a SaaS tech product that had one single, you know, could have multiple, you know, features on it, but had one single, you know, mission or something that it was supposed to accomplish. And that its success would be based on how narrowly defined it was because it would get acquired by somebody who was doing, you know, some bigger overarching thing. I could never be good at building a individual, you know, niche consumer brands that would have the 
strongest of followings out there and get acquired for 20x because you know it's just they did such a good job with what they were doing i think my strength <laughs> this also leads to a ton of issues but <laughs> is is building out uh, a larger system and connecting all the dots together so a ethical startup or an ethical food company might look at sourcing from you know africa or southeast asia or latin america you know from parts and would say hey i'm just going to make sure that you know i'm purchasing snack bars from here or some of my ingredients are coming from here like they would there would be barely any verification they would accept the fact that they're only dealing with primarily male landowners who own plantations compared to real small farmers fair trade is garbage um, if you actually go through what their certifications are, the people who started fair trade left fair trade. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you we're from the bottom up trying to change who can be a part of agriculture, how it works, making sure that it's always upcycled, it's better for the environment, like the whole system ties together. And then on the back end, I haven't talked about this, and this is why we're more supply chain than a food company right now. But, you know, now that we've aggregated tens of thousands of farmers <clears throat> women, youth, refugees, and their family members, you know, in an area like Western Kenya. And we have a supply chain that picks up from them. So, you know, we have an empty truck that goes out, and picks up stuff from collection points from village empowerment centers is the name they gave them. And they go place to place and, and cooperatives are created that aggregate the product to those village empowerment centers in the first place. If you were to take a video of that entire process and you were to play it backwards, like in reverse, we have a last mile distribution system that takes something from capital cities all the way to the most rural remote households in a village. And that's something like Bill Gates has not been able to accomplish in 20 years. And that's because, you know, all his solutions have been, I'm going to build a last mile supply chain. And why don't people want, you know, access to vaccines and cheaper medicine and et cetera. Instead, we incentivize people to do it by paying them for the products they have. We're now taking those empty trucks and filling it with um, cheaper and uh, verified agricultural inputs. So seeds, feeds, fertilizers, fuels. We're putting solar electricity units on it for the people who are now making more money. Doesn't mean they have access to be able to buy that stuff. So now we work with other partners who have focused on a technology and on a, a financing structure, but they have absolutely zero you know, network and capacity to get this out there. So now we're putting solar electricity units and people are buying them at a 20% discount. And the fertilizer gets to them at a 50% discount. And so all these things, we're able to take a cut of that, but it's always at a discount to them and the groups that are selling the stuff to us in the first place. They're now, they're now able to reach, ideally, the people they've always wanted to um, because our truck is already paid for, essentially. Like it, it was profitable to begin with just doing the ingredients. So yeah, that's the, the back end of it. So to answer your question, I've always made things more complicated than <laughs> what somebody might... Uh, I think is smart to begin with, but uh, we've managed to create bigger outsized value from that for AgriCycle. Yeah. And it seems like that's like a value of yours that's important is impact and how can I like make this as efficient as possible, but also as beneficial to everyone along the way. And, and I get that. And I'm really big on like your business should 100% embody your values. Uh, it's an extension of you in a lot of ways. And, and you've done a really great job of having so many aspects of the business be able to embody that, you know, those values that you have of making real impact uh, in as many ways as possible, which is fantastic. 
yeah, my vision for what AgriSec is able to do is to become, you know, if you're to buy ingredients from AgriCycle, you're buying ingredients not just from a fair trade certified, you know, supplier. It's not just women or youth. It's not just upcycled, but you're buying from a supply chain that is then able to create access to, you know, clean and affordable energy, uh, uh, medicine, vaccines, digital healthcare, affordable inputs, better margins, uh, respects the rights of the poor in terms of not locking them into exclusivity, paying within zero to two days, like an entire system that I don't think any other food supply chain can speak to right now that you know, their members are getting healthcare because of, you know, what they're doing. So that's, that's what I want AgriCycle to become. Mm, that's, that's massive. That's great. How long have you guys been at it? Uh, so I, the, the idea became a real idea in the spring of 2016. Got it. Started an LLC in October, 2017. So I'd say that's the, the real start of it was when we originally did not want to be a, a company thought that it was a terrible conflict of interest and how could you be for profit when you're trying to be nice um, mm. and definitely grew up out of that uh, that was primarily driven by how much it sucks to start a nonprofit and there was a $600 application fee which we did not have and to start an LLC in Wisconsin it was free so <laughs> there you <laughs> go part of the driver. <laughs> um, but also just realizing that you know the only way that we were going to scale we could got this really good advice of, so you're working with poor people in Africa. And we were like, yeah, it's definitely way more than that, but yes, in general. And they're like, okay, how are you going to compete in with the millions of other organizations doing that for the small amount of donations that go toward it? I was like, ah, man. He's like, I mean, you guys are college kids. There's no way that you're going (laughs) to attract the responsible money of donations. So that was part of it of like, okay, yeah, we we have to create our own system that's going to sustain itself. And suddenly social entrepreneurship made sense in that we weren't reliant on donors and we could scale. Like it's not just about being able to tread water. It's about being able to swim toward the destination. So we had to be able to grow and and invest that back in. And venture capital is an amazing tool for, it came way too late in some senses, but it it also came at the perfect time because we figured so much out without it, even if it was a huge struggle. So it came in such an outsized way compared to any sort of donation or nonprofit thing we could have had. And that started it up just enough to start making our own revenue and profit. And that's, that, that's how it's grown. So... I love it. Everything seems to have fallen in place. And I'm so happy that you guys got to, uh, you know, came to the, the the piece that you could have profit and impact at the same point. I think a lot of people really uh, do struggle with that. And what I love about you guys growing as massive as you can is that you show that that is possible. And that is like, people need example of that because the two can 100% be together. And you are showing that. Is there any... Like, did, did it take a little bit of getting okay with that at the beginning? Or once you guys saw like, okay, we can have profit and impact together, this makes sense. Or was there still a little bit of like internal misalignment to how you were operating? I'd say the misalignment came from not... So I, I it was more of like a switch went off when I realized that startups are being for profit, but for good was... A possible and B a good thing. I'd say that I had more difficulty getting over the idea of like startup culture or calling myself a CEO. For the longest time, I refused to use the term CEO. And I was like, 
I'm a founder. I've created an idea and we're, we're doing this thing, but I didn't want to be one of the people who tossed on a CEO hat and we're selling this big idea and everything I've done. And it, you know, it's in the basement of their parents' kitchen. That didn't make sense, but you, you know what I mean? So <laughs> point is, is that I didn't want to be calling myself something bigger than what it was. And I was very uncomfortable with what I found to just be the reality is that you have to sell where you're going and this yourself one step ahead of where you are than what you're doing right now. Cause if what I was doing right now is I have dried fruit from Africa and I think it like could sell in retail stores. That is not at all what would raise money. And it didn't, those pitches failed you know, wholeheartedly and never got anywhere. But when it was like, Hey, I have a vertically integrated supply chain that we're going to create a portfolio of the next generation of brands that meet, you know, ethical standards across the board, even though we changed from that and we found that there was a better way and that that was tedious in itself, but it was a bigger idea, even though we weren't there, obviously, you know, we, we needed money to get there. We needed time. We need to learn stuff and screw up, but it was an uncomfortability with talking about what the future held when I hadn't even done much actual work today. We had a network of tens of thousands of people and I had never paid more than 50 of them money. We didn't have a market to bring it to. And I didn't have money to pay them just to eat a bunch of dried fruit myself. So it was, it felt uncomfortable selling what it could be when we weren't, you know, the main thing yet. I've definitely learned since then and, you know, we've grown a lot. So it works now. We, we are paying thousands of people, but it, it took realizing that it wasn't lying or it wasn't being deceitful or anything. It was talking about the thing people wanted to understand, not just because they had, you know, rose tinted glasses, but they wanted to see where this whole thing was headed. You want to get on the boat that's actually like going somewhere instead of just, you know, doing a lap. So that's, that's where some uncomfortability came from during that time. Yeah, I, I think a lot of founders definitely deal with that struggle of stepping into that role of CEO and selling the vision. But I think you've done a, a great job with it. And clearly, because you guys seem to have been winning a ton of pitch decks and you've raised money or pitch competitions and you've raised money. What's your secret to winning pitches? Is it selling the vision of where you're going? Because this is like something that also helped make the company possible at the beginning. What's your, what's yeah. your secret sauce for pitching? Yeah. So for, for pitching, it's definitely been based on the vision. And then if you get somebody wrapped up in the vision and so excited about it and wanting it to work out just from hearing, you know, the pitch, and then, you know, in the last 45 seconds of the pitch, you just, because <laughs> there's always a time limit. So, so the last 45 seconds, that's just when you pummel them with like in 500 stores, United Nations food and agriculture, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like, you just, toss out a bunch of names in an order that doesn't make sense. You're not even using verbs between them. And, and you've just said the words and you're like, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. And like that, that seems to have worked for us in, in a few cases where we're not actually explaining a whole lot. We're just like, if you believe in this thing and you hear that, what we just said at the end, which are true things, but like uh, our great accomplishments and our evidence that the thing works in the first place, then, you know, I hope, I hope you vote for us or like get us to the next round at least, or get me to a Q and a where I can show you that there's an actual business, but it's a very complicated thing to try to explain in a, in a pitch competition where they're normally looking for like, I mean, dear God, if it's open to anybody, then we're against tech and <laughs> tech is so simple to explain. Or, or if it's, you know, food, it's, you know, individual brands that have super strong, you know, consumer focuses and it's, innately compelling because 
they're a brand and like they focused on that. So our thing has been selling this big idea, big idea, talking about the scope of it, uh, the problem, talking about how perfect glove fit our solution is, and then tossing out a bunch of like accolades in the last <laughs> 30 or 45 seconds and hoping that there's a Q&A. Well, it seems to be working for you. So that's great. <laughs> Keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect to actually have advice about it, but I, like, when you know, there's like a pattern that we had, I, I think that's it. It's more of like, uh, <laughs> toss it all out. Okay. I feel like there's probably a ton of challenges that you have had to overcome with this, uh, just in the nature of the business and heck, food and bev, a simple brand, there are a ton of different challenges. What's one of the challenges that you guys have had to face that you really did not see coming? And and how did you overcome that? The resistance to work culture changes with some of our team in East Africa has been massive. So generally, and please take this as like, you know, a general statement and summary, but the work culture in East Africa, can only speak there, is laggard in terms of a ambition, you know, like you don't, you don't show up to work trying to get something done. You show up to work and then, you know, you leave and if something happened during it, cool. You know, that's, that's a thing that happened. We have brought on ambitious people who have hated that culture and have wanted something else, wanted to actually do something. And then they're like, holy crap, this mission's amazing. So, so it's interesting because, you know, for the Americans on our team, like they want that thing too. You know, they're coming from corporate America, com- coming from, you know, an agency and they're like, you know, it didn't move fast enough, blah, blah, blah. But comparatively, America's moving pretty fast. <laughs> So in East Africa, it's half just the work culture has been the attraction compared to the mission where in the U.S., you know, most of the mission, the work culture is like an awesome thing. But when we brought people on, even though they're of a completely different mindset, you know, in their head and and of what they desire and want, they want something that moves fast and that can do all these things. The like learned lessons of the past 10, five, five to 20 years of working in corporate you know, industrial settings in in East Africa has just been so hard to like pull out. So the example would be in our supply chains, we set a deadline for a shipment. 40 foot container needs to go out by this date, bar none. Like <laughs> you are drying your own fruits if, if it's not if it's not uh, ready. We missed a deadline like a couple of weeks ago. And this wasn't a deadline that affected any customers. It was actually just our product. So it affected our ability to stock on shelves and everything and to, to restock some of our online sellers. So that sucked and that's terrible. And like normally to you know brand, that would be like yelling at the supplier. But on the supplier side for still with us, we were dumbfounded by like, you know, we kept saying this cannot happen, not just cannot happen, but like, what can we do? Is the sourcing okay? Like trying trying to make this work. And it took, flights out there to figure out that they were like, oh, we missed the shipment deadline and we have another shipment coming in four weeks. So we're just going to combine them. And we were, what, (laughs) where did that come from? And and somehow this term or that this phrase had come out of like the buyers gave us another month and we were like, we're the buyers. I'm not sure, (laughs) not sure where this idea came from that another month suddenly, you know, there's not a 13th month that this didn't happen. And so it was learning that it's just an example of where kind of these things of, oh, well, you know, we missed a deadline. So we'll just fall back on the 
next deadline rather than oh, the deadline is still two days ago. That just means like all your efforts need to be to get this out. So it's been little things like that, that our team has been very open about, you know, what, once we finally uncover it, they're like, wow, no, that's definitely not how we would have done it here. <laughs> you know, deadlines missed, wait till the next. So yeah, that's, that's been some of the challenges. It's our biggest challenges are with our supply chain. Obviously we're, we're doing this very distributed rural supply chain and I'd say just one of the unique ones has been some of the like learned practices that some of our team has been trying to get out of, even though they're, they desire to to have this like different outlook, but there's still some practices that crop up like that, that functionally like throw the company back. And then, and then I have to explain like, okay, you know, if we don't have the product to sell for two weeks, we're basically, you know, we're having the same burn rate, right? We're, you know, the same salary, the same, you know, software costs, the same infrastructure, we're not making any forward progress for two whole weeks. Basically, like you, we're losing money just by not, you know, moving this forward. It's not that it was too expensive or something. It was just, we've now, we're not going to fire people or lay anyone off for, for two weeks. So, so we're just kind of stuck. And, and it was that sort of explanation where people, oh, wow. Yeah. That mathematically makes sense. And, and yeah, long story short, that's, that's just one of the, the challenges. Yeah, that's got to be such an interesting one because the cultural differences are quite quite drastically different and trying to bring it all together. I'm so excited to see the impact of what that is going to look like in the future and again like how that is going to impact the greater community as well as more people uh, maybe adapt these type of you know, ways of thinking and ways of operating, how does that then trickle into the communities as well as they then talk to their neighbor about it, talk to their friends, talk to their family, and just, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So for them to like see, well, this is why we do it and see the bigger picture. And it's actually really interesting as you talk about that too, you know, given the fact that there always seemed to be before you guys this a whole bunch of middlemen, a whole bunch of middlemen that potentially people were just seeing their silo so small that they've never had the opportunity to see the large picture, which you're now making available to them. It's painful. It's painful as you're doing it 100%. But that's really interesting to be able to shift that mindset to allow you know, people to look at things from a bigger picture, which I think will you know help you guys in the long run. But yeah some painful pieces in the meantime, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just point out too, that, you know, if it's not the middlemen and the silos, it's largest filled nonprofits that, you know, their funding is secured for the next three years. They're sitting on $20 million and uh, things don't have to happen <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to continue. Yeah. They, they write a report of, Hey, it wasn't as effective as we hoped. And they might get a little less money the next time, but you know, the money's coming most of the time. And, and that, you know, you might have somebody from the NGO world push back on that. But I, from my experience, you know, the, the mindset is that accepting that things take a long time and then moving at that pace rather than saying this company will shut down if we're not able to make things move faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's like the other mm-hmm. mindset that, that crops up or, you know, background. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You are just getting such an interesting perspective on so many different pieces of industry and the world and like all the different moving parts with this business, which is such a great, great piece. 
For anyone who is starting out a food company, ingredient company, wanting to make an impact in the world in a, in a bigger way through food in some way, what advice would you have for them? First piece of advice would be you can go a lot longer without resources than you probably think you can. So, I mean, you, you need to do farmer's markets for a little while to learn all the mistakes before you go and actually make a real package. And you need a, a crappy package with a bad graphic design on it that, you know, is not eco-friendly first to figure out your stuff before you move on to the next stage of you know, making the design better and having, you know, more expensive eco-friendly package. And there's, there's just a realism to starting small and figuring out the ideas. And that is not at all what I wanted to do. I strove to make something way bigger, but nobody was ready to fund it because we hadn't figured out our stuff yet. So we were forced into doing this. I'm more of saying that it's it's totally acceptable to do this. And your idea doesn't have to be launched in the next 12 months, you know, in stores or something that there can be a longer road to incremental improvement and everything and getting it ready. Um, the second thing I'd say is that if you're near any sort of metropolitan area, um, there is support there from universities who have small funds or pitch competitions. Everyone has a pitch competition now. And that just at the very least gives you a YouTube video, you know, have somebody record it, YouTube video, post it, make a video on LinkedIn and people will start liking your stuff and you'll get in front of the right people. But there's resources out there, even if it's not money to cheaper packaging, to somebody who will give you a lower minimum work quantity, to somebody who will tell you that your food tastes like garbage. Um, so just that there's there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of cities are trying to create these sorts of resources to incentivize new business. And just that there's so much starting out that you can use before you need to pour in your own money. And I guess I'm talking to people who don't have their own resources here because if you have a hundred grand that you're willing to put in yourself, then you know a lot of this is kind of moot. Take your time launching it, but <laughs> but you know you don't need as many resources. But for the people who don't have the resources, there are lots of things out there, even in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, Josh, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I am personally so inspired by your story, and I'm so thrilled that you could share it with everyone listening. Uh, I think it's a great example of how food can make the world a better place in so many ways, and how we can truly change. You can change the world with food and with business. Uh, and so I'm so excited that that leadership camp that you went to changed your mind about the direction to go and that you have kept riding this oftentimes bumpy road to continue to bring this forward and, and really change the world with your product. And, and I mean that wholeheartedly. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and yeah, definitely look forward to watching you grow and seeing the impact that AgroCycle continues to make. Thank you so much. It was really great being on here. That's it for this week, food friend. Thanks for tuning in. If the show helped you in any way, please go ahead and leave a rating or review of the show below. I also want to thank our sponsor one more time, the Food Brands That Sell program, the program to transform how you navigate the CPG industry and ultimately sets you up for success within it. Go ahead and get yourself on the waitlist using the link below, or you can put yourself on the waitlist at foodbrandsthatsellwaitlist.com. Catch you next time, food friend.